this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer, and I have Adam Pokernicki with me today, the COO at Digital Asset Investment Management. Adam, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. So Adam was a portfolio manager at a credit fund in New York City, uh, shorted the banks in 2008, and then simultaneously became fascinated with Bitcoin. Uh, we love having people that came from the quote-unquote traditional asset world that have traversed into the world of digital assets. Your perspective is very interesting because as more people are learning about Bitcoin and digital assets, it is not just people that are on the fringes. It is people that are institutional quality investment managers and traders. And we're going to talk about a very big one. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones, obviously, uh, was in the news over the last few days. But what we like to do before we get too far into this is there was a point in time, and I alluded to it, I kind of gave a hint to it. But there was a point in time when you were doing your day-to-day activities and obviously other people that listen to the show, the family offices and the institutional investors that listen to the show also know this. But there was a specific point in time where you found yourself into Bitcoin and to digital assets, into the world of blockchain. And for some, it had the, you know, the censorship resistance. It had the ability to obviously have the hard cap. There were certain things about the nuances and the technology and the underlying technology that really resonated with people. I'm curious, what really resonated with you to make you make that leap into this world? Um, well, a lot had to do with sort of the experience of the 2008-2009 crisis. Um, the response kind of changed my worldview. Um, I was in a, like, at, at Scottwood, we had, Scottwood Capital, we had the fortune, the good fortune of being introduced into subprime CDS Um by um, Paulson, the hedge fund that was famous for sort of putting on the big trade. The trader at the time used to be uh, my my portfolio manager's um, uh, assistant when he was at Bear Stearns. Uh, and the trader had told me to take a look at this stuff. I was obviously like not sure what the hell this stuff was. And what, it, what ended up happening was after like spending like a couple of months on the desks of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs going over their research and kind of doing, I really began to like understand how the plumbing of the financial system was built. Um, and when you start understanding the plumbing of the financial system, how it's built, you start really having an intricate knowledge of um, what the response was and how it all worked and why you felt a certain way. And, and one of the things that ended up happening with Scottwood afterwards, after successfully navigating the crisis, is that we got really negative because we were right and we got out of the trade and then we turned long, but we got really negative about how they put Humpty Dumpty back together. Mm. Um, and it, we found the response in the subsequent two and a half years after this sort of the big bazooka that came on March 9th in 2009. Mm-hmm we found ourselves like at a crossroads in terms of like being able to feel like we could actively invest um, with alpha versus just being, uh, um, you know, invested in the market on the long side. We didn't feel like the, like, we felt like the market was like based on all the sets of circumstances we knew that it was completely rigged, the inflation or the, the sort of response and the potential inflation or however you want to kind of think about it was like an investment environment in which we were just not necessarily suited for. And, 
you know, be understanding all of it and being negative or one thing, but like being positive about the future and being excited about the future is a lot harder when you're so negative about what exactly you understood happened underneath. I mean, the banks were completely insolvent at the time. Um, and obviously they got a bailout and, you know, as we were going through this in 2012, I was in a little bit of a chat room with a couple other guys and I had a friend of mine. Um, his name is Michael Krieger. He, he's, um, he was a, the, an energy strategist at Bernstein and he had gotten a hold of the Bitcoin white paper and he was like, poker, take a look at this. And Mike, take a look at this. And we were like, we're like, you got to imagine the time we were like just Wall Street guys kind of like just trying to figure out the world and understand like what was happening, what was going forward. And we all read it collectively. And we, I think I, I remember we were all reading it like six or seven times. And I, the, the thing that came out of most of us is we saw like this potential for a system that made us really excited about the future. One in which like we felt like there was like something here. We didn't totally understand it, but it got us like all collectively like excited about building a system that felt fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a system that felt like it could, it could operate outside of wall street. And so we all took like little chances on it. Um, we like would like email each other back and forth. Be like, I bought some Bitcoin. I got some of this thing on Mt. Gox. My money took like two <laughs> weeks to get, to get there. I don't know if it's even. How do you know if it's there? And I remember us all like individually, like just kind of going through this. But like collectively, we be all became positive for the first time, right? Like you know, distressed investing, high yield investing, which are which was our natural core competency, tends to make you a little bit cynical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like being cynical as an investor sucks. It's not fun. Um, kind of like looking for like what's wrong all the time than rather than what's right. Yep. Um, and you know, this, this whole Bitcoin thing, we obviously knew it was like super speculative, but again, you know, there's a lot of different nuances of why people like Bitcoin, whether it's like the hard money fixed supply, whether it's just like this system, this revolutionary thing that's decentralized, the anarchy, like, you know, people were like using it for drug money and whatever back then. But like, we saw this possibility of a future that we wanted to be a part of. And so we each like sort of like started like, you know, putting a little skin in the game. I mm-hmm. ended up getting kind of crushed on Mt. Gox. I lost like 90% of my original Bitcoin in Mt. Gox. Oh. Um, eh, you know, it's like... It's one of those things that you kind of like don't wish that actually happened, but at the end of the day, they they help like sort of like lessons learned. Yeah, exactly. Lessons learned, but they also force you to to say, "Did do I really like this investment?" And I, of course, it, nothing changed. I recognized the stupidity of me leaving my money on the exchange. I was trying to arb out the difference between prices between Mt. Gox and some other exchanges because like the difference was like mm-hmm. number, and I just got caught. I got stuck. And, you know, that's, that was, that was on me a lot. Uh, and I, and I blame myself, but like, I, I reckon it to the no different than, you know, Lehman Brothers collapsing or another bank collapsing. And it's like, that doesn't mean the financial system's broken. And didn't, to me, it didn't mean that Bitcoin was broken. It just meant that like, I just happened to get stuck in the, in, 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 in the wrong, in the wrong horse. Right. Now I'm curious because I think there's been this fallacy that for years and years, and this is something, again, this comes to education. You know, I came from the family office world and I've talked to many of family offices and institutional investors. And I think there's been this kind of, as I said, fallacy that Bitcoin has not really been on the eyes and the ears and the radars of institutional investors, of people in Wall Street. Would you agree or disagree with that for, you know, say for the last, call it even the last five to six to seven years. Would you say that that is true or not true? Absolutely true. Um, and I think a little bit part of it is that 
a lot of guys were pissed off that they missed the easy money. Um, and so they've actually wanted it to fail because they didn't want to be seen as not being smart. Um, I've got a lot of guys who I talk to all the time who basically, oh, Bitcoin, the price, it's just stupid. How can it be worth it? Like, and I'm like, ah, what do you mean? Like, I talked to a smart guy this morning. I mean, maybe the, the, the guy that I talked to you about the subprime CDS, I got me in it. Like, the same guy this morning. And I was, he was like, I don't, the price is $10,000. Why would I buy it up here? And I'm like, do you know what $10,000 represents? It's like not even like a, cool, a third of the cash balance. I mean, like half of the cash balance of Apple. I was like, when you think about like what Bitcoin's worth at $10,000, and then you try to put it in perspective and compare it to other things, what they can relatively get through in their mind, they don't really actually have a concept of the value of it. And they, they tend to look at the price because everybody looks at the price and they say like, oh, why should it be up there? And I said, so like a lot of people, because it's hard to understand, because like it's gone from like basically zero to 10,000 or 20,000 back to 3,000 back to 10,000 and it's volatile. And they're like, ah, oh, I don't need the Bitcoin. I, I just go buy these stock software companies or Apple or something like that. It's like, they're not even doing work. Mm -hmm. And I think that just happens to be a function of the fact that like Bitcoin's hard to understand and wrap your mind around easily. Wall Street's not covering it. So they're not getting that cheap, easy research. Yep. I like that, like that, that's in their investment world. All the guys that they talk to, they, you know, I've made it, I've said this thing before the copycat, like they're all like talking about the same things. I can't even tell you from my experience in the hedge funds, like every one of the analysts under my team was all talking to the same guys about the same shit and going to the same events and getting pitched the same ideas and what's ever in their universe and where's research on because they can justify it that way. And then they do the internal research inside the fund and they're like, okay, this is an acceptable investor. Well, Bitcoin's a little, little outside that it's, it falls outside of like, you know, how do you do proper research? Most right. of these guys have no available ability to sort of like look at it from a fundamental um perspective and or look at it from a technical perspective like what are the technical nuances that make bitcoin superior as both like a transfer of value system and a, and potentially a settlement layer right like they're like they don't even like they can't even it's hard to concept that stuff and they always right. say stupid stuff like blockchain not bitcoin and i'm like come on man so let me dig in there so this has been a fundamental issue across the board, not just on the sell side, but also on the buy side, not just from Wall Street, but also from endowments and CIOs and family offices, is this idea of job risk. And so you alluded to it. You said, okay, if you were building a portfolio, and let's just say that they're equities, you will depend on the research from the bulge bracket firms out there. And so you will then go to your Monday morning meeting with your PMs and your, and your ICs out there, and you will pitch that idea. And it will be backed by the research that the lauded bulge bracket firms put out. And so if it fails, you can then say, okay, well, Deutsche and Goldman and Citi and Credit Suisse all had this, you know, the same type of thesis behind it. And so my job is safe, basically, kind of alluded to that. Obviously, it might not be, but you, you have a little bit more of a blanket, if you will, a safety blanket. And so I think that's kind of what you're alluding to. Is that correct? A hundred percent. I mean, that is that is that that is at every layer of, um, I guess, the stack in terms of investing, whether it's guys that they, who are the allocators of funds of funds, whether it's the hedge funds and the job risk. Like you don't take career risk on things that you don't understand. Like I remember specifically uh, when we were in business and we always would raise capital, we were a, 
an event-driven credit fund. And, but we were kind of opportunistic. And so we never fell into a specific bucket like that was like that allocators and family offices wanted to, 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 they were like, well, you're kind of like this guy, but you're not because you're doing that. You're kind of a this and you're not, and you're that. And they were like, we would always get allocators who would not give us money because we couldn't put it in a bucket. And then therefore they didn't want to like, if we did something wrong, they didn't want to look at us and say like, oh man, you guys took risk on a fund that doesn't really fit into our model. Right. And then same thing applies at the, at the analyst level. Right. Like you're looking at something and in and, 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 and any time like there's not like broad based coverage of it, you are then doing like this, own, your own sort of like um, proprietary coverage of some of these opaque investments. And that's where they go wrong. And so you, you have this sort of like mind share, like when you come from the institutional side, especially the hedge fund guys. And it certainly be, seems very apparent with like asset managers at the like, you know, like financial advisors and wealth managers, they need another protection layer that says like, well, they recommended it. Um, you know, like I, 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 that's not my fault. Right. right. Like JP Morgan did that. It's not my fault. I mean, think about like the financial crisis, right? How many guys were actually hedged in the financial crisis? We were right. Mm-hmm. Well, well, like all the guys that didn't hedge, they were able to look around their, themselves and say like, well, the S&P's down, you know, like this is down, this is down. I don't need to do this. Uh, you know, there wasn't any, like they, they weren't taking their, they weren't, they didn't have to worry about job risk. Now on the other hand, if you take, if you are really, really smart, you're supposed to get rewarded. But like, if you take, if you take risks that you think are good risk related probabilities and you, and you are wrong, Right. Mm-hmm. you often actually get really, really, really punished. And that's just kind of the nature of how sort of like institutional investing works, right? Nobody wants to be seen as like taking an investment and that's not considered something that everybody else is doing and taking mm-hmm. the risk and getting it wrong because then you're seen, you're seen as being irresponsible. Fall into the mean. Yeah. So I want to address this. This was a a tweet that Adam put out on April 30th that went viral and it caught a lot of people's attention and um, it's really interesting. So I'm going to read it out. I have a client who's ready to buy Bitcoin and after talking to his advisors at JB Morgan and Goldman Sachs told me he's not interested anymore. I asked what they said and instead of answering, he asked me to explain in one sentence what the benefits are to buying Bitcoin now in terms of proven results. And you can imagine people out there that a lot of a lot of replies to this tweet, um, and Adam went on to talking about modern portfolio theory and optimal portfolio theory and efficient frontiers. But I'm curious from that, did you what was the response? You know, were you able to talk to that person again and give him what or him or her what they wanted? And I'm curious, it, 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 do you think this is kind of falling into the problem, the trap that we're kind of talking about right now? Is that you have people out there in traditional world that just don't know this well enough. And, you know, if they have a client who wants to get into it, then they're, you know, potentially putting their jobs at risk because, you know, they can't necessarily explain the risk associated. Um, the answer is um, there's a lot of things I think that go into it. Number one, I think that I know that I know this number one, um, the big banks are, have a completely new, Bitcoin policy. I've tried to get guys into Bitcoin who work at all the big banks uh, myself. Their compliance department just won't let them. Um, 
it's a big problem. Like even in their IRAs, they're they're for their own investment portfolios because they have to work at the banks and they have a wealth management arm. They're forced to actually have all their assets be managed by the wealth management arm, and then the wealth management arm has a no Bitcoin policy. Um, furthermore, like when you have a no Bitcoin policy, that kind of like it's like it, it, the, the 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 conversation ends and start like starts and ends there, right? And so these wealth managers know that there is a no Bitcoin policy, and so it's easy for them to say, "Don't you should be investing in Bitcoin." I asked them if they actually gave him a um, real reason why, and he's like, "Yeah, they just told me it was really really risky and blah blah blah." And I you know, and I question. I said to him, um, I questioned the fact that whether that they should actually be even managing and advising that anyways, like, you know, a little bit, a little bit of history. And this is why this too, is that like, it was really difficult to get our license to be actually able to advise and manage on Bitcoin. Digital asset investment management ended up getting the very first license um, from the regulators, the department. We, we, we very, very first, and I know, I know this because we were audited um, by the financial advisors board who looked at our records and saw that we were the very first people that got the exemption. Um, like you need to, you need to update your ADV. And at the time they were not like allowing anyone to do this back in 2018 when my, when, when it was applied. And I say this because one of the things that has to happen is that these banks are going to need to update their compliance, their ADVs, their, um, their licenses to say that they're actually going to manage and advise the Bitcoin digital assets. That's a mammoth actual task. They have to train their employees, educate them. They haven't done that. We know that they haven't done that. We would know if they did that. So the, the fact that like his advisors actually gave him advice on Bitcoin digital assets, I, I actually questioned that that was like suspect in the first place because I don't think he's actually licensed to be giving that advice anyways. Hmm. You can simply say, hey man, I don't know. Honestly, and I'm not allowed. I'm not licensed to be actually advised on it, right? Uh -huh. Like, like we went through an entirely difficult process just to be able to do this. And we, when we, when we um, did do it, we did it because we said that like investors in the United States are either doing it themselves, right, or mm -hmm. they're 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 not doing it at all. And or a lot of investors are taking to like exchanges across that are, you know, foreign exchanges where they're getting crushed on um, these crappy coins. They're paying like these high fees. We need some like we need some people who are in there like kind of like being like, slow it down. Let's let's protect you over here. Let's act in your best interest for United States clients working with United States businesses in a manner that can be compliant with like the way that advisors are supposed to act towards bitcoins. Like, and like, so like going back to, 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 to the client that, that did it, the answer is he's still not in it. He's a little bit mad at me um, because of that tweet. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he told me, he's like, and I told him, I was like, you know, like, I'd like to close the loop. I really like to get like an understanding of like, maybe you can introduce me to your advisor. Right. And we can talk together and we can work as a sub advisor, right? Like, that advisor has a perfectly reasonable way to say to his client, if he's looking out for his own best interest, hey, I will hear him out and listen to the story and say, like, maybe, like, okay, that's, we can work with him and keep your asset and keep their assets under management and sub advise out to us, perhaps, right? Where we can split fees or some of the arrangements like that. That's kind of like the arrangement that we are trying to work on. We mm -hmm. rather advisors, even if they're not licensed or they don't have the infrastructure that we built that are set up to like say, you know, I know that like, 
I don't understand Bitcoin. I know that we don't offer it here, but I think that we should like look after your best interest and I'm going to work with advisor A, B, or C, right? There's right. not many guys like us, but like, we'll do it for you. And the, the advantages of, of having that conversation is that they can keep their assets under management. They can work with someone who's going to work on behalf of the client and on behalf of them. And they can, like, they can, they, that those pool of assets aren't going to exchanges where they're not making any fees anyways. And they're able to protect the investors and see it as part of their overall portfolio. And so I want to shift into, you wrote a blog post uh, recently about a tipping point or tipping points. And uh, we both have an affinity for Malcolm Gladwell, uh, amazing author. And we're going to talk about that. This is all leading to tipping points. And uh, there was a massive one over the last few days where Paul Tudor Jones, the legendary investor, was very public uh, about his entry into Bitcoin, putting 1% to 2% of his assets into it, wrote a very elaborate and well-documented and well-researched paper with someone that I believe used to work with the IMF, and you also alluded to that. Um, you know, what we're dealing with right now is uh, just the news came out a little while ago that uh, Pelosi is now asking for another $3 trillion package. We've already printed out over $6 trillion, as Tudor Jones in the letter wrote in the first paragraph, magically created through quantitative easing. And we also now have issues where public pensions are becoming in dire straits. We have them making about five and a half, maybe 5.2% uh, returns where they're really supposed to be making about seven. So there's a delta of about 1.8. Um, over the course of the last quarter with the markets, the S&P dropping about 34% before the interventions, you have them you know, hurting and some of them were down in aggregate about 13%. And so you have asset managers out there, you have allocators, and now you have one of the most institutional quality investors of our time in the last 40 years saying, hey, there are problems out there, structural problems, very similar, you know, kind of to 2008, 2009. They're different, obviously. The banks are not insolvent to this point that we've been able to tell. Um, but there are big, significant problems here. And we are printing, and that printing now has a non-zero non probability of some sort of fiat destruction. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, with this tipping point, talk to us about the tipping point, talk to us about Paul Tudor Jones, talk to us about why now, why is it now a time to really take a look at this? Well, I, first of all, the data says you're supposed to take a look at it, right? Like I've, I've been, I've been clear. I'm more, I, I reach out to funds all the time and institutional managers and, and asset, um, CI, asset managers, CIOs, the data shows I do, I've done it for everyone's portfolio. I go in in a detailed way. I look at, I, I customize it. I go in and the data says that having Bitcoin is a great diversification tool and provides superior absolute and risk adjusted returns in portfolios that don't. And that in like, when you want to look at the models and how these people manage money, you have to sit there and look at the asset and say, over this like five-year period, ten-year period, like I'm, maybe I'm missing a free lunch, right? Like we know the we know those terms, right? Like data speaking, like from a portfolio standpoint, Bitcoin says that it is worth having at least some exposure to it, and actually, worst portfolios are the ones that have zero exposure. So, like, let, let's just start there as a diversification tool. I don't know. Um, but when it comes to like funds, everybody needs. It goes back to that career risk, right? Like. Um, 
no one really has stepped up. I know like Yale did last year, but like, like Yale uh, as well, as much as Yale is like a big force in it, Paul Tudor Jones is the name on every trader. He put the hedge in hedge fund, right? Like he's like, he's the guy that people look and read books about. He, and maybe his returns have been sort of average over the last few years, but like Paul Tudor Jones is an investing legend who runs a macro strategy that has over a trillion dollars in assets under management, right? Like not, not him in terms of him having a trillion dollars. The entire strategy has a million dollars or trillion dollars in assets under management. What that does is it creates what I believe in our experience in, in, in being in the hedge fund world is like the copycatting, right? Like we, we, we tend to know, like sniff out what other people are doing. We're like, maybe we should be doing that too. Like, right? Like there's only so much you can do and there's mm-hmm. rarely anytime new assets come along um, there's rarely, uh, that rarely ever happens. I, you know, I, had, I put a guest piece in the post for my, for my mentor and, 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 and my boss at Scottwood Capital, who, who actually was even more articulate about how, how neat of a moment this is about referring to Bitcoin and being introduced to Wall Street in terms of like Michael Milken and Louis Ranieri, Michael Milken with junk bonds and Louis Ranieri with, um, mortgage-backed securities, right? Like these are investments that not only were like built on the fringes of finance and mostly like disregarded at first, right? Like it took like 15 years for Wall Street to embrace junk bonds and then uh-huh. they cleverly renamed it high yield, right? Like there's a reason it was called junk bond and there's a reason it was renamed high yield. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and then same with, with, with Louis Rainieri. He had him and some of this Barney had like basically the like entire monopoly on, on mortgage backed securities. Both of these instruments were highly innovative and helped people, right? Like think about it. They were both innovative and helped people at the end of the day. And when you look at Bitcoin, it's just like, it's been out here on the fringes. There's all these us geeks, early adopters, whatever you want to call us, anarchists, are 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 talking about its praise, and ultimately, all, most of us believe Bitcoin is a tool of freedom, right? Bitcoin uh-huh. is a is a a hedge against um, you know unlimited money printing. It's sound money. It's fixed money. It's a way to transfer value quickly, quietly, uh-huh. and, and for low. And so there's all these ways in in in, in countries that are having inflation and oppressive regimes and regimes or surveillance where Bitcoin could become a tool of value. And I think that like, you know, like when we talk about like, if you want to reference Paul Tudor Jones, I think while Paul Tudor Jones made a really, really, really big case, the thing that got me really like curious about his letter was who wrote it. Uh And Lorenzo Giorgiani, like Lorenzo Giorgiani was, is not, and I wrote this in that tweet, is not some crypto kid, cypherpunk, or like, you yep. know, like young guy recommending to this boss. This is a man who oversaw policy and impl- implementation of several emerging market and developing country financial and currency crisis, which is, which struck me as like interesting in itself, right? I, I kind of believe that ultimately inflation is not necessarily going to be manifest in the United States here anytime soon. I think the strong dollar relative to other currencies is going to actually create inflation elsewhere or a depreciation of dollars across the world, right? The strong dollar is going to continue for a while. These dollar, these countries that have dollar denominated debt are going to be crushed under their own um, 
under their own under their own weight, and they're going to have currency crises. And I think it's where countries around the world, and that's what got me about the Paul Tudor Jones investment. They didn't explicitly say inflation was going to be in the U.S. They talked about inflation. Inflation can be anywhere in the world. And what's unique about Bitcoin is that it's stateless money, uh-huh. right? And so, like for regimes and countries and people around the world, you're not like it's you don't control where you're born and the money regime you're born into. But now that we have this stateless money, we can actually choose which money we decide is good, which money we decide is bad. And I think that like Lorenzo Giorgiani, being someone who has worked in emerging markets within currency crises and, and these financial crises, sees this as like this, this hardened form of money that I don't, he does they don't need to be right about where the inflation is. Right. And I, it, right, you know, they just need to be right that like it's going to be a tool used for it. And if this gets you, and if the demand picks up, and we all know this, Dave, the fixed supply of Bitcoin is it means that the 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 price of Bitcoin isn't linked to U.S. dollars; it's linked to demand. Uh-huh. So, like, as demand picks up in places where they're under pressure, whether it's a government or a or the or or the uh, building on the financial reserves and adding Bitcoin to it somewhere else in the world, all we need is the demand to pick up. For this to be right, and that can be right about where inflation is, and, and, and maybe like people in America, are like I don't see it. You know, that's the benefit of like sort of like when you look at Bitcoin, like your experience about what money is and how hard it is, or if it's not um, good money at all, is based on where you live and the geography in which you you, you live, you, you are. So you know, like I find that fascinating. I do too. And I think the last question I'm going to ask you, and it's a tough one, and it's not necessarily a fair question because I don't really, I don't talk about price predictions. I don't do any of that stuff. I don't really, it's really hard. The KPIs and the data is not really there. Yes, we just went through the halving and now we're at 6.25, you know, Bitcoin per hour on the reward side. Um, You know, it's obviously we've had a fundamental shift in the supply. Um, and now we have one of the most legendary investors out there publicly stating that it is a very viable time to review this. But as we speak, I think there's roughly about 70, maybe 50 or 60 million people within the United States that have some sort of level of exposure to Bitcoin. I think it might be, give or take, it might be a rough number. Uh, but if I'm wrong, please correct me. Um, you know, when do we get to a point where it really becomes something where everyone says, and I call it the awakening. When do we, when do you think, you know, is it soon? When do we think that we have this awakening where people say, okay, you know, we're in such, you know, a bleep storm (laughs) that, you know, our, our currencies, our local currencies are going through such, you know, crap, you know, we might not necessarily have hyperinflation, but we're definitely our dollars, our money are worth less today than they were yesterday. Um, you know, when do we get to that point, do you think, in the next five, the next 10 years? When do you think we get to a point where people just start having this awakening uh, to the fact that Bitcoin is something that we know has properties of a hard money that is obviously, you know, with a fixed cap? When do we get to that point where people say, OK, you know, I got, I got to get into this thing in a much more, you know, kind of expeditious way. So I actually wrote this to, um, I actually wrote what I thought would be like, um, uh, where like the narrative, the larger, um, conversation on like, you know, the talk, the CNBCs and the, and the, and in the, the news and the paper and wherever Bloomberg and stuff. I wrote this to, um, someone at Gemini that I, we that we work with on helping us build our sort of platform on 
being able to do digital assets. I told, I actually think that like a large part of Bitcoin's narrative um, and people in general understanding why it has value is going to be a function of, of the price of gold breaching 2000. Hmm. Uh, I, 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 I really believe that like, you know, I was a gold guy back in the 2008, 2009 crisis. And, um, you know, gold had obviously had its run, but like anyone who's at, who follows gold over the last, um, sort of 10 years knows that gold's been in a deep bear market. And a lot of mm-hmm. people believe gold's been manipulated downwards with all these weird tradings on, um, on the futures and, and, and really kind of manipulating price. Even in the gold market right now, there's like this supply crisis of actual physical and trying to like, sort of like play hot potato in terms of delivering physical gold. Um, gold and Bitcoin are obviously have very similar characteristics as sound money. And the sound money is a narrative that I think will resonate when people are seeing gold's price at 2000. People like round numbers, right? Mm -hmm. We like round numbers, 2000, 10,000, 5,000, whatever. Gold breaching 2000 will create this like almost like free marketing for Bitcoin is like I like to call it. Huh. Right, where like they're going to be talking about sound money, and when they start talking about sound money, because gold is basically if it breaches two thousand, you everyone it's the most it's it's one of the largest investments in the world. Um, people understand gold because it's held its value and has been used as a store of value for five thousand years, and that when gold goes to two thousand, which is already trading at all time highs against just about every other currency in the world. When gold goes to 2000, that conversation, that narrative about store value gets automatically gets to be like placed on top of Bitcoin. And then we can sit there and argue that Bitcoin is actually a better store of value in, 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 than gold. It has all the properties of gold with a lot more qualities and characteristics. And then similar to what Paul Tudor Jones said about like, you know, Bitcoin's price relative to the actual market share of gold. Like, I don't like to give price predictions because I think it's like, it puts me in a characteristic in a, in a category of people that are like always, I call them moon boys. <laughs> like I, I really truly believe that Bitcoin's ultimate destiny is to be, is to, is to, to become part of the store of value and the conversation about money. Yep. And we all know what those, those, those sort of market opportunities are gold, 7.5 trillion. Yep. Um, Actually, it's a little bit more now. You know, money supply depending on which m which which one you're using, anywhere from like um, you know fifty trillion to like hundred trillion. These are the like the areas that we're talking about Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is sitting here at like one hundred and forty billion dollars or fifty billion dollars. People are like, it's overpriced. Are you fucking kidding me? Sorry. <laughs> like, I, like, I, like we are talking about like like almost like different la- like apples. Yep. To, we're talking like apples to like I don't know like planets right now. Yep. Like we're not even in the the stratosphere of the use case of what it could potentially be, especially native to an entire generation coming up. You know. That, that, that is like born with the internet. And so, you know, we always, we're, we're low, pro, low time pre- preference investors, right? We're yeah. talking about five years, 10 years. You don't need to sit there and plan on like making 10, 100%, 100% on your investment in Bitcoin. It's about the sort of long term and what Bitcoin could actually become. And so we're trying to train our, the clients that we work with as becoming like, we call them part of the 21 million club. Mm. Get to one Bitcoin because, yeah. like, there's there's currently 48 million millionaires in the world. 
And you know, if you kind of like back out the numbers of available Bitcoin right now, or you take the total supply and back out how many Bitcoin are lost, right? 17, 4 million are lost. So, yep. so maybe it's only going to be 17 million. If every millionaire wanted to own one Bitcoin, they couldn't even own 0.33 Bitcoins. Like it's like, <laughs> it, like when I told that to the guy this morning, um, you know, it, who put us into the help us get into the subprime trade, and I kind of referenced it, framed it in that reference, relatively speaking, of the how scarce it was. Uh-huh. He really was like, he actually was literally blown away. He was like, wait, what? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I just want you to own one right now. Yep. But like, even if you did the like, whether you buy today or tomorrow, there like, there's like. There's like there's there's 48 million more guys like you who are millionaires. Like you guys could not own just one. That's how scarce it is. And so like I was like I I genuinely don't think when you say the word ten thousand dollars is a high price that you actually even understand what that means. I think so, that is a heck of a point. That is a heck of a point, and I I don't think anyone's made that point on the show yet. And I think that is a really valuable point I've talked about. And Tudor Jones also talked about it. You know, I I see a lot of things from the lens of being a father and I have two kids. They don't have any relationship to to cash these days. Everything is is virtual. Everything is on, you know, on mobile devices. They play Fortnite. And so, you know, all these V-Bucks and all this other stuff. And obviously with COVID, you know, the idea of holding cash right now, mm, I don't think I really want to necessarily hold, you know, fiat hard currency right now that might contain a, uh, a pathogen that could, you know, potentially wreak havoc on my body and my family. So I think, you know, that also plays into it. But what you're stipulating too is so spot on. Um, and so I think that gives a lot of people more to chew on when they're thinking about, you know, reviewing Bitcoin uh, and digital assets into their portfolio. The last thing I want to do, Adam, before I let you go, um, is where can people find out more about the work that you're doing and get in touch with you? Um, yeah, Dame, I mean, look, we help clients, individual clients invest Bitcoin in their um, 401k, IRA, um, and cash brokerage accounts. Um I I I I I say this too because I I want to make it really clear. I the Roth IRA, which is what we try to get most of our clients invested in Bitcoin, is I call it the God account. Um, and I don't know if you probably even thought about this, but like the Roth IRA is such a is such an amazing qualified vehicle to invest in Bitcoin. You will never pay taxes again. <laughs> like the concept of never paying taxes on an asymmetric potential investment on Bitcoin, whether it's a transaction or on the way out is such a crazy concept. Most guys don't have a Roth IRA because they've already had so much wealth that um, they don't qualify for the benefits of a Roth IRA. But like, I actually tried to, I explained the Roth IRA um, to a recent client that, that, that um, um, joined us. He, he was a partner at Goldman Sachs and he just retired and he had this 401k. And so we had him roll over the 401k to us, put it in a traditional IRA, and then we converted his, his traditional 401k to a Roth IRA. And he's like, I'll pay the taxes. Cause he, he had a, he had a pretty strong opinion on where Bitcoin is going. And now like he's basically set up this investment that like for the next 20 years will never be charged taxes again. I'm like, brother, I was like, that was so wow. sad. It's like a backdoor. He did a backdoor Roth conversion, which was like totally cool. But like if anyone is interested, you know, we're doing, I think that we are, as far as I know, because we work with regulators pretty careful, pretty closely about like what we're doing. You know, we're the only ones that have gone through the vetted, the, the vetted process of being audited. 
Um, you know, as a financial advisor, that is our bread and butter. We're just focused on on Bitcoin and digital assets and trying to provide like a really clean, ethical, um, you know, experience for investors to get exposure and to get empowered along the way. And then go to www.daim.io um, and 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 you find us there, contact us, we'll schedule a call. You know, Dave, you can probably tell pretty passionate and like, yeah. like I'm talking about it. Like we try to make ex- clients have like a full-time experience because like they get that, they don't get it from anyone else. They want mm-hmm. to do it individually from exchanges and our fees are basically the same as a sit fees for a year, are almost the same as a single trade on Coinbase or Gemini. So like, yeah, yeah. So the, we 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 think that like we offer a really really nice opportunity, especially being able to put it in directly in your retirement accounts. Well, that is very enticing, and I hope a lot of people listen to that and take a look. This was Adam Hokernicki from Dame, um, and I think this is a great conversation again because Adam, you have such experience from the traditional side you've seen it all in the last decade or so and the last decade has given people a lot of perspective and a lot of insight and you saw how the sausage was made and so the fact that you've switched over and obviously speak so eloquently about bitcoin is really important so everyone check out adam and the work they're doing there and adam hopefully in the next few months we can catch up and see how things are going thanks for coming on the show thanks dave For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.